Right, this is the Infinite Jigsaw Podcast, a place of honest conversation and a desire to improve sense making. Andrew Mahon, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Have I um, pronounced your surname correctly? <laughs> Mon, it's one syllable. It's almost pretend the O isn't there. Got you, got you. Okay. <laughs> now, we are both members of the Foundation of Society online group where there are uh, thanks to the careful curation of personalities by our friend and founder of the society carbon mike some very thoughtful and intelligent people uh, who by all accounts are achieving good things in their lives but when preparing to talk to you today about about talent and the obligation of talent mm. uh, a thought occurred which was although i can get an idea of the general level of intelligence of the individuals in the society through my kind of interactions online without actually talking one-on-one I've I've not much idea of their specific talents hmm. and this led me to consider that that talent may be apart from intelligence as a as a subset or, or you might say a particular detail of character and it also occurred that that general intelligence must then be gathered from several areas of experience mental openness exposure to and consideration of ideas other than your own and also the ability to admit false assumptions and and evolving sense making so i'd like to talk with you firstly about the specifics of talent as a a phenomenon of the individual you know something that is perhaps innate and not generally gathered from experience and also about talent being recognized and admired in a different way than is general intelligence um and how people look at individual talent through through an emotional lens, which can be uh, sometimes tinted with not only admiration, but also a little bit of envy sometimes. You know, witnessing someone do something that you're not able to do yourself can invoke a, a deep emotion. Now, I know that you have a couple of specific details to your character, one being you're a successful writer, which we'll come on to, but also a talent in the form of being a vocalist, a specifically a bass baritone and uh, your talent for singing is such that you are at a professional level and you perform and, and record with other talented professionals so Andrew I wanted to ask your thoughts on how much of what you can do with your instrument your voice do you think is is innate you know like a hard-coded element to your person versus how much of it is honed by practice and dedication to technique yeah um i mean certainly both of those things are probably true the the dedication to technique and working hard at it is something that i've had to do over decades now um whether or not people have talent is a question that doesn't just present itself on its own you have to identify it if if i'd never started singing in the first place i would have never discovered that i had a talent Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that whatever discipline it is, um, you do need to participate to a degree, even to discover whether it's something you have a talent for. And talent obviously is aside from your interest in it. You may have a talent, but no interest. You may have an interest, but no talent. In my case, uh, both my parents were singers and I was raised doing it from a very young age. So it wasn't something I ever chose in the first instance um it was something i was put into um and i just did it my whole life and i developed um to to a very high degree in various elements of singing i mean obviously there's musicality there's ensemble singing there's um reading music uh there's developing your technique as a singer there's learning how to perform on stage all these things and if you ask me about my talent uh, it, it's a combination of all of them and i only came to realize that i um had such a talent once i started um making a living uh, at doing it i i suppose um i may have been good or bad at different times in my life uh when i was a child you know, you're not you're not really aware how good you are um, in the grand scheme of things as a child. But 
it really manifested itself later. So with, without having worked at it all those years, I don't think it would have been identified as talent. So, I mean, based on your question, my first thought is, how do we define talent? And obviously it's separate from skill and separate from developing your skill. It's some sort of, what is it? Is, is it an, an innate, um, something innate about you that means you have a specific um, knack for this uh, over other people? How would you define talent? That's the thing, because um, I was thinking in terms of it being a, a phenomenon of the individual. And and yeah, then I described I, I don't think it's generally gathered as is as is intelligence. But I, I get the sense that it is something um, more innate. I know that you've described uh, that the, the, the more dedicated you are uh, and perhaps the more exposure you have to people that are also proficient the the you know the richer your talent becomes but it's it's inescapable that the the uh, the bedrock must be there in the first place uh, and and that's the question really um, mm. where, from from where does it emanate yeah it's um i mean with singing it's something that i've spent my whole life doing there are a lot of people who do work very hard at singing but they don't end up with the success that they want and that that depends on a lot of things and that's such as do they have a nice voice and who decides whether it's a nice voice i mean whether or not i have talent to sing and whether or not that's innate it's a difficult question for me to answer. It's something that I grew up with, something my family did. Um, and yet at the same time, I've been able to make a career about it uh, with it. And that means that people want to hear me. Mm. And I don't know whether that means I have talent or, or what there are. Someone can have a great voice. Someone can be a great performer, but may not be a great musician. But someone can be a great musician, not have the greatest voice. Um, so talent manifests itself in really different ways. And it's not immediately apparent until you pursue something. I think anyone can pursue singing, for example. Um, you can do it for many reasons. You don't have to try and make a career out of it. In fact, it's not a very good career because it's not very reliable, as mm. the past year has made abundantly clear. Um, the first thing to go was mass public gatherings and I require those to make a career and they'll probably be the last thing to come back, but I can still sing. I can still sit at my piano. I can still sing for the joy of it. And anyone can do that. And once you start doing that, you can also work at it. You can develop the skill. You can work on your technique. You can work on your musicality. You can learn to read music, learn to sight read. You can do all these things um in something like singing which is some people like different singers uh for different reasons i i struggle to identify the innate talent um of a singer because it's such a complex thing and maybe that's because i've just thought about it so much mm. i don't know does that make sense uh, yeah at all? yeah it, it does let's talk uh a moment about um, lost opportunity. I, th I think that in a healthy competitive society, a, a person's talent um, like brings on opportunity, which is why we got the phrase harnessing your talent. You know, when you have a talent, you can you can kind of be assured to feel confident when you're called upon to perform in in that realm. I guess you've had a lot of experience of that, and who doesn't like the sensation of being called upon to perform when the audience responds with with genuine admiration mm. and it's it's kind of funny because even if those who aren't, aren't interested in a particular thing let's just say ballet for instance which is kind of a niche passion nevertheless they can easily admire the um, like the athleticism of the dancers and mm. the dedication that they exert in order to extend their talent to maximum effect but but there's a bit of a flip side, um, I think, to audience admiration and success. And that is 
about the talented individuals who, who don't realise their potential. And they kind of fall into two groups. I wonder if you agree with me that one is the people that have the opportunity to bring their talents to bear. And the other is those who, for whatever reason, don't find the opportunity and life kind of passes them by in that way. Because there's a technical thing here that the talents, especially the more physical ones, which you could probably count singing as one of them, I guess it's a very physical thing. The older the body becomes, the less readily capable it is um, to perform. And there's another useful cliche here, and that's like strike while the iron's hot. Yeah. Mm. So have you got any experience of, of at points not harnessing your own talent? And have, have you come across anyone who's had the talent but just, just didn't harness it? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, well, firstly, what, what you said about it being physical, that's absolutely true. Uh, when people ask me about my singing, I, I often say it's as much an athletic discipline as it is an artistic one um, because you are effectively training your body to do something. And what, what people don't appreciate is that um, when you're a classical singer, you don't use a microphone. So you've got to train your body to project sound in a healthy way. Um, sometimes you have to do it for hours at a time to a hall of thousands of people over an orchestra of you know, many players. Mm. Um, if you don't know how to use your body correctly to do that, you will really hurt yourself very quickly. Um, right. So it, it, it's it's an athletic discipline that requires um, a lot of training. And some people, um, speaking of just the techniques of singing, just the mechanics of being able to amplify your own uh, sound, some people can do that more naturally. And I think that's very related to language. So Italians, if you, if you, all, if you listen to Italians speak, mm. they have a very resonant um, way of speaking that's built into the language. And so they're using these parts of their skull to, to amplify the sound in quite a healthy way. And that's why Italians often make for good opera singers. That's why they have mm. that culture. There, there, there's a relationship there. Whereas um, American English in particular, I'm from Canada, so it's the same thing applies. The way we speak I think you can hear a difference between the way English people speak versus American in um, uh, which is related to acting. Um, American actors learn for the television screen or the film screen, whereas British actors learn for the stage. And I think that has to do with the histories. And so the the British school of acting very much applying the same sort of techniques that I learned in singing, because you have to be able to speak for sometimes hours at a time to hundreds, if not thousands of people without hurting your voice or losing your voice, which mm -hmm. would be worst case scenario. And um, but the film industry, of course, you're just speaking into a microphone. So the introduction of the amplifier in I don't know when it was probably the early 20th century changed music. Um, in a way that a lot of people don't appreciate, because then you didn't have to use your voice in the way I've spent decades training my voice. Right. You could just um, do something different. And that practical difference uh, resulted in a different aesthetic. People wanted to hear different things. And you had crooners emerge who could sing very softly into a microphone that then amplified them. And so it worked. But in terms of pure mechanical singing, it's not really the same thing. Um, so, so that idea of language and singing being closely related, how you use your voice, um, in my case, I, I found it quite difficult to be able to train my voice to do what I have to do, uh, professionally now. It took me years and I knew many other singers who just, it came to them so easily. And mm. I don't know if that's luck of the draw or or what, but some, some people just get it. Some people, you hear them speak and it's just naturally louder, but it doesn't sound like they're yelling. Um, and, and other people, uh, you know, tend to resonate their voices in their throats, which sometimes even sounds uncomfortable to listen to. Um, other people uh, speak in their noses, uh, which 
sounds very nasal, but it's got this ping to it, which is very useful in singing. Um, so everyone starts at a different point. And, and uh, if you know this is the route you want to go down, and you have a long way to go because it's something that's particularly hard for you, it's going to, one thing, cost a lot of money to get that training. Um, right. And so the opportunity of training to be a classical singer in particular, very few people make a lot of money at it. You know, you can have a career and you can make a decent amount of money, but the amount of people who go to music colleges and universities invest uh, thousands over years to develop and then end up doing something else with their careers um, outweighs the, the number of people who actually make it in that business because it's not a business it's a it's a discipline it's something you work at you know it's a it's, it's an athletic and musical um discipline which is worth doing in its own right if you value music as an art form um so that access to opportunity idea and i think anyone can sing if you want to do that it's it's a useful thing to do um you don't have to train your voice to sing to a massive concert hall, but you can, and that's a difficult thing to, a difficult, a difficult road to pursue and a very expensive one. So, and it's also a, a very culturally embedded. Um, if you're from a culture where that doesn't exist, you will naturally have less opportunity. Um, I don't know if you can compare that to other disciplines um, as easily, because singing is such a, I mean, such a niche thing. You mentioned ballet. I, I suppose that's a, a similar one. Um, anyone could do it if you wanted to, to be a ballet dancer. But some people just will be far better than others. And that's mm. fine. Um, not everyone's going to be a professional ballet dancer. Um, but those who do have taken it to such a high level. Um, and, and what is that? Is that? Is that natural talent? Is that innate? Because ballet is something that has been created over however many years um, to be a specific thing. And anyone can try to do that. And the moment you have a group of people all trying to do that, you very quickly develop a hierarchy with those who are very good. Mm -hmm. And there are very few of those. But then at the bottom, those who are not very good. But there's no harm in anyone pursuing it because you wouldn't ever find out. And I suppose you need to have access to that that aspect of the culture. And if you're, if you're from a country that doesn't have ballet or that doesn't have classical singing, you won't you wouldn't have that opportunity. Um, so I'm guessing from what you just said um, and describing how, how how hard you've worked really um, at singing at your craft, that you've had not had much much experience of of letting yourself down and not harnessing your own talent. And you've been pretty steady in your mm. in your effort. Yeah, that, well, you see, the better you get, um, in my experience, uh, the, uh, the the harder I get on myself. And right. um, a, a bad performance for me is not a bad performance 10 years ago. Um, it's far better than that. But um, my, my relative judgment changes as I get better and, and it gets more specific. Like I, I know more and more what I'm after and in a sense it becomes harder to reach even though I'm much closer than I used to be. The closer you get, the, the more specifically you identify what you're after. Um, and I've always, teachers have always um, gotten mad at me because I'm, they said they tell me I'm too hard on myself. Uh, we, we have a, a culture where I think most people just want to be told they they're doing well and uh, want to be coddled a little bit. That's certainly mm -hmm. true of singing, especially because it's such a personal thing, right? Someone goes into a lesson, you, you're putting yourself out there. Your 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 body is your instrument, and it's hard to take that criticism. And so a lot of people come in saying, "This is what I can do," and they just want it to be made better. Whereas my attitude was always, "This is what I can do now." I don't like it. I want to get better, but I want to get better by, in a sense, destroying what I have and replacing it with something better. To me, I've long understood that that is what improvement actually means. You have to sort of break down what it is you're doing 
in order to get better. And the people who aren't prepared to do that, they can't really get better. They can sort of tweak what they do, but unless they're willing to examine what's wrong on a deeper level, um, they can't get better. So I, yeah, I, I'm rarely completely satisfied with a performance because um, I'm very exacting and I have very high standards for myself. And I don't think that will ever change. And I don't think it should because it's what helps me to get better. But, you know, if I take a step away, if I wait a few weeks, reflect and have a listen back to a performance, if it was recorded, I can probably um, take a more realistic view and say, actually, in the grand scheme of things, that was pretty good. You know, but in the in the moment, I expect more of myself. Um, and, And I think that's what happens anytime you take. Um, a, a discipline to a high level. You know, look at look at professional athletes. Look at look at tennis players who, after every match, they talk about how they felt and how what yeah. what didn't work and what they what they couldn't get to work and what what they need to go back and work on to get better. They're always thinking about that. Um, and I don't see why any discipline shouldn't be like that. If you really want to excel at it, uh, if you just want to be made to I don't know, feel good about what you can already do, then you're not really in it to improve. And is there, in the singing world, you, you just mentioned that there is a, a, a slight bit of coddling that goes on, um, and that's just replete over the in, the whole world, really. But and that's, that doesn't help the, the next group of people that I'd like to talk about, and that's the ones who, who could have applied themselves a bit more and know deep down they didn't guess, get the best out of out of their talent. When you have uh, tutors that are tough on you, and you have the experience of actually having tutors say, don't be so tough on yourself, perhaps you're just particularly particularly like that. But when yeah. you have tutors that are tough on you and, and genuinely want the best for you and give you criticism day to day, surely that's got to be better for you as long as it's constructive and you know as long as it doesn't isn't put you off better for you than existing in a world where people don't want to upset anybody by saying that you could do better or you're not getting the best out yourself you know get off your ass Mm. so have you come across a few of these people that that you you just secretly thought you you can do better than that oh yeah um yeah, this coddling thing, I mean, it's something I noticed particularly when I was in university. Um, and part of the problem with singing, which is a greater problem there than in, in other disciplines, is that um, if you're with a teacher who isn't very good, um, then this sort of uh, teaching that you described, which is is helpful um, to you know, to tell someone this is what you're not doing right, this is how you get better, that sort of constructive but tough love. Um, That's great. But if you have a teacher who isn't very good, Mm. it's difficult to know that your teacher isn't very good. And with something as physical as as singing, um, a bad teacher can really do a lot of damage to a student. So the, the biggest problem, I think, is that singing, the mechanism of singing is all internal. Right. It's in your mouth. It's in your skull. It's in your throat. It's in your uh, chest cavity. And you can't see it. Neither you can see it nor can nor your teacher. Um, so the way singing teaching works on a mechanical level is they have to do de- they either describe it medically um, and they can show you pictures which you could never see with your own eyes. Mm-hmm. Like you can't go into a, a, a human body that is singing and actually see these things. Um, still less can you do that for your own body. Um, or they can talk with feelings. They can say it feels like this and use metaphors. You know, it's, it's kind of like taking your car to a, a mechanic and him trying to diagnose the problem just by listening and Mm. explaining in metaphor how he thinks it could be fixed. It's a really difficult thing to do. It's a very slow process. If you don't have, um, if it doesn't come naturally to you, like I I spoke about the, the the Italian language being particularly um, beneficial for that kind of singing. Um, Other languages uh, are, are beneficial as well in different ways. I would say German is in a very different way. Um, but if it's particularly hard for you, 
and you um, go to a music college and there's this well-known teacher there who, you know, a lot of people speak highly of and you think, well, this is a great teacher. You know, I'm investing a lot of money here. And then little do you know that teacher is actually not helping you at all. You can do a lot of damage to your future prospects of singing um, because you don't know enough to know that the person uh, who's teaching you doesn't know enough to teach you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and there, there are, I would say, a lot of teachers um, in universities and music colleges and private teachers who, who don't know what they're doing. Um, I, I've had lessons with some myself. And when I learned that, uh, like I'd been singing my whole life before I started taking lessons in the mechanics. That's part of the reason why I found it difficult is because I'd been singing my whole life and hadn't really been told how to use my voice and my body in a healthy manner. And so I developed a lot of bad habits, which I had to unlearn before I relearned. And that's what really put me in the mindset that uh, enabled me to get better. I don't think I would have been able to unless I actually was willing to go through that sort of i mean it is a kind of death-like thing you have to be willing to let go of what it is you do well in order to get rid of what you don't and replace it with something better um and so i was i was a bit more aware of the kind of teaching i was getting and i would i would scrutinize it and i would say is this helping me um is this healthy do i think this is it was a learning process because I, I didn't know when I started out. But as time went on, I, I learned to identify what was good, what wasn't good. And I think a lot of singers never did. And especially if they had a teacher which would make them feel good about their voice and say, wow, you're amazing every lesson. Then they would leave and think, oh, what a great lesson. Mm. Uh, but what they meant was my teacher made me feel good. Um that, that sort of student, if it didn't come naturally to them and they weren't um, singing really well in performances anyway, um, yeah, most, most of those wouldn't have gone on to realize their potential as singers. And that's, that's really unfortunate. Um, in, I think in other disciplines, other instruments, like if you play the piano or the violin or whatever, your teacher can see what you're doing. You can film yourself and watch it back. If you're if you're an athlete, you know, if you're doing a track and field or or whatever, you're a tennis player. You can you can film yourself. You can watch. Your teacher can see what you're doing. You can look at your teacher. With singing, you can only see what it looks like on the outside. You can't actually see the mechanics of what's happening. And so a, a lot of um, yeah, there's a lot of bad teaching going on. And so a lot of people uh, don't get a chance to realize their potential uh, because of that, I think. Um, also, the coddling thing. Um, thats It's such an easy thing for a teacher to do. You know, if you want to yeah. have an easy time of it and get lots of students and, and have a pretty successful teaching career, just make them feel good about themselves. Yeah, I, I agree. And hearing you, hearing you talk then, I already know that the, this is a more multi-layered issue than I originally thought but I'd like to just hold on the, the coddling thing for a moment and and ask you something let me frame a question there's a fact that has become very difficult for modern people to handle and that is that some people are just better at some things than others mm. um, they've got more aptitude for instance uh, lots of people have been in the circumstance of having been given a job at work where where they feel out of their depth and this this makes um, you uneasy and it, and your colleagues pick up on it. And it also makes them feel uneasy, which is why we have again, why we have a cliche for it. We have the cliche out of your depth. You know, this this is a precept that sustains in our language for a reason. And the same goes with fish out of water. These are phrases that help us express a socially awkward situation because the phenomenon of being out of your depth is, is a common one. So it, it qualifies for for common parlance and I get the sense that the the woke culture undermines the reality that these phrases describe for us because woke culture to my mind desires equality of outcome and to achieve equality of outcome you must put aside things like talent in favor of what they 
what these people perceive as fairness. But to my mind, it's not really fair to expect someone to perform a role when they are not able to do that, when they don't have the required aptitude or, or the talent. So do you, do you see any of the desire for a quality of outcome creeping into the world of, of, of you know, your world, the world of the orchestra? Or is that world somehow ring fenced against the invasion? Um, no, I don't think it is. I, I don't think anywhere is these days. Um, I, I've read stories about orchestras who are trying to get racial quotas uh, gender quotas, um, which means mm. that they're not prioritizing getting the best players anymore. Um, whereas for years they have had blind auditions. Yes, yes. Right? Because can you just the, explain that to to us yeah. and how it came about? So I, I mean, originally when we were going for color blindness, um, you know, Martin Luther King's words, um, the, the orchestras. Um, were criticized for probably um, discriminating against women in particular. And they responded by having a panel uh, hearing someone audition for a particular role, but they couldn't see the person. They didn't know whether it was a male, female, black, white, anything. It's a good idea, right? It sounds like a good idea. It's a great idea because in an orchestra, all you care about is how good a player they are. And you can hear that. That's something you're listening for. Um, but the the outcome is uh, still perceived to be heavily white and I'm not sure if it's heavily male anymore. I don't actually know the demographics of orchestras, um, but now there, a lot of them are talking about uh, getting racial quotas, um, which means they're not prioritizing the best players anymore. Now in an orchestra, okay, that might result in an orchestra that isn't quite as good as it might be. Um, but maybe they would say, but over time, you know, including people of different races in the orchestra will be better for everybody. Who knows? Maybe. Um, but I recently heard that I think United Airlines in the United States is has quotas, uh, racial and gender quotas for pilots. Hmm. And I mean, that made me stop and think that, you know, I. I, I most of these people will be able to fly a plane. That isn't the mm. issue. The issue mm. is you're no longer prioritizing who are the best people um, to hire as pilots. And the, the consequences of getting that wrong uh, for, I mean, I'm, I'm going to avoid United Airlines after that. <laughs> yeah, right on. Um, yeah. So, no, it's I don't think anywhere is immune from this sort of uh, woke um, equality of outcome and. I mean, it just—it doesn't make sense. You mentioned when when you wrote to me the first time, you mentioned basketball as an example. I mean, obviously, people who are taller are are generally speaking going to be better at basketball. It's not always the case. There are some great short players and there are some terrible tall players. But in general, if you're taller, you have an advantage. And if they started to make height quotas for basketball because they were discriminating against short people it would re result in uh, worse players worse teams um but it, this is happening all over it is and yeah with basketball it'd be an interesting inversion if they looked at the the demographic of ethnicity which is it's got to be 70 percent african-american maybe more approximately yeah approximately yeah so if you want to address that, that that balance that's a that's a real can of worms that that is that's that's an inversion that's that's um worth looking at i think yeah or, 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 sp or sprinting i mean Indeed. in the first half of the 20th century you saw these um videos of sprinting and they're all white <laughs> and, yeah. and then it very quickly changed to all black um and that's just you know people have done studies on why that is um why it is that um, the fastest people tend to be uh, have black skin and it has something to do with fast twitch muscle fibers and uh, the length of the Achilles tendon or something. Those are theories. I don't know the actual truth, mm -hmm. but that's because the fastest person wins and the fastest people get into those races. And if you let everyone compete, which is what changed, um, then it's just, you know, you know the fastest person well, what are you going to do you're going to say we have to make a quota for slow people 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's the scheme of the equality of outcome thing is absolutely chilling. And when you described the United Airlines situation, if ever there should be, um, you know, someone that's top of their class being considered first because they're just so bloody good at um, doing something as technical as flying a plane mm. uh, as being the, the, you know, the number one proviso for, for being employed. It's that. And same goes for the orchestra, really. If, there, if ever there should be a meritocracy, it's got to be in an orchestra because of the, the technical difficulty that you, you, you have to have in your locker to be able to to perform with the other performers and keep up with them. Yeah, it, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, some, any discipline that you're pursuing, um, any art, um, you want the people who've pursued it to the highest level. That's what's going to get the best results. And and that, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. Um, what's uh, Do you have any sense of what it's like in your home country of Canada in terms of a desire for equality of outcome, this scheme that they have? Yeah, I think it's as bad there as anywhere. Yeah, I got that um, sense too. I don't think Justin Trudeau is doing anything to resist it whatsoever. No, I think he loves it. He's, yeah. uh, I mean, he, he said in 2015, I think, um, when he first came into, when he first won the election and formed a government, he m- made sure that uh, 50% of his cabinet was female. And, you know, when he was asked why, he said, because it's 2015. And so whatever else that meant, it meant he wasn't choosing people based on merit. He wasn't choosing the best people for each role in order to govern the nation as well as he could. Instead, he just wanted the appearance of gender equality. Mm-hmm. And it, of course, it doesn't. It didn't reflect the number of elected uh, MPs. It just meant if you were a woman who was elected as a liberal MP, you had a far greater chance at being made a cabinet minister than if you were a man. We had the same thing in this country with um, the Liberal Democrats, which is now an obliterated party. Yeah. Um, but in the last election, they put forth what, what they called an AWR, an all-women's list, and you weren't allowed to contest a, um, a seat uh, unless you were female. <laughs> so there you go. But what this, this this chilling scheme of equality of outcome actually ends up with is is what I mentioned before, and that's pe- people in positions that they just aren't really capable of fulfilling that position. So what you have to do is build a, a structure around them, a HR structure, which protects them from criticism from their peers uh, and from the the owners of the business, the shareholders and whatever. I mean, I speak from experience when I say that it's not really that nice to be the stupidest person in the room. Mm. You know, and conversely, I've also had the, the sensation where I've been the most able in the room, but you know, I've been in a lot of different rooms in my life. So <laughs> could could we talk about the church for a moment, Andrew? Yeah. I understand that you're a Catholic. I am. And I've been really enjoying your articles in the Catholic Journal. I think they're excellent. Oh, thanks. If if the church, and just asking for your opinion, if the church are there to, to shepherd us uh, according to the teachings of God, then, then shouldn't there be more of an effort to, to mentor and encourage people into recognising their their God-given talents, as the saying goes, more of an effort from the church in this direction. Wow. Um, I, I mean, I'm tempted to say yes, but there are probably a hundred other things that the church should also be doing that it's not doing. Um, yeah, identifying talent. Well, where does that happen? Should I say? Yeah, where, do, where does that happen? Doesn't that happen in, in education? Um, at one time, the Catholic Church was in control of education um most uh, most universities i think originally were were founded by by catholic um catholic monks and and there are catholic school systems now but which are i mean there's very there's very very little that's catholic about them except the name right um i think there's a lot that's wrong with education in general that i think the the church should be uh, pushing back against. Um, for instance, nobody's really taught philosophy anymore. Mm. Um, it's a it's a very 
very rare school where you find a decent um, decent philosophy taught, especially at a younger age. Um, nobody's really taught Latin anymore. Certainly, I wasn't taught either of those things, and I think both are extremely important as time goes on because one is one is how to think, and the other, well, it basically teaches you um, the underpinnings of the English language, which m- makes you better able to articulate your thoughts. And if you can, if you can, if you know how to think and you know how to articulate your thoughts, then I think what you're asking about becomes um, it, it's nested in a in a better uh, foundation. Um, because uh, you know, I'm I'm all for people getting a wide education, um, and you do have to try things to find out what it is you're good at, what you aren't good at. But we do we do need to get back to a culture where people choose disciplines and, and pursue them. Uh, instead, we have uh, uh, universities in particular. People go in and they want to keep their options open. That's like their number one thing. Certainly it was for me when I went into university. And the problem with that is you never commit to any one thing and you never really become... Uh, an expert in any one thing. Um, I think it's better to choose one path and and really learn it um, than it, even if it's not something you're particularly suited to, um, because that makes you wiser as a whole, because you actually have pursued a discipline as far as it'll go. I think that's more important than actually identifying where your talent is. Um, but maybe I'm thinking too much in terms of my experience as a singer, uh, because for all I know, maybe I had greater talents elsewhere. Maybe I yeah. would have been, maybe I would have, would have been the world's greatest ballet dancer. I don't know. I didn't ever take ballet. I wasn't interested. Um, maybe I would have been great at, you know, some other obscure sport or, or instrument that I never picked up. Um, I don't know how you identify talent without trying a lot of things, but at the same time, if you stop there, if you just try to give the most broad, well-rounded education possible, then that's the real problem. That's when talent doesn't get nurtured. So, you know, I think even if you are, you're, you're not um, singing, isn't your, your greatest strength. If you wanted to sing and you pursued it to um, a high level, I think that's better than not having pursued anything. And I think that's probably more important than identifying what your greatest talent is, though I think that's important as well, insofar as it's possible. Um, And I think as regards the church, you know, whatever it is you do, I I think a a good work ethic is, um, yeah, is... uh, integral to to christianity and and yeah you're right you should you should try and identify your talents and pursue them but i i think the more important thing is that whatever whatever it is you do end up doing that you you are taught to inculcate a proper work ethic and pursue it um to an end. I know on the foundation society chat i, I there was a conversation a while back Um, which I participated in, Um, and I I quoted Kierkegaard, um, who talks about flirtation, and and the problem with our society is we just want to flirt with a whole bunch of different things, and, and, you know, with um, relations between the sexes, a man can flirt with many women, but he can only really love one girl. That's what Kierkegaard says, because to choose one is, is to reject all others in that sense. And so what I'm trying to get at is that I think young people um, in school and university, it's better for them to choose one thing and pursue it, thereby rejecting other things than it is to just keep your options open because you're waiting around for the the thing you love most to to come to you. I mean, that that's just not the way it works, I don't think. I, I think you have to pursue something. And you might be better at it or worse at it at it than other people. And so be it. Um, 
and then once you've pursued something, there's nothing to say you can't also pursue something else. Um, but but it's through pursuing something as far as you can and really working at it that you learn about yourself and you learn what am I good at, what am I not good at, what do I want to be doing, what don't I. If you don't actually take that risk, um, we're too risk averse. That that's the yeah. problem with society. We're we're so risk averse that we won't take that step. You know the dating culture. Where I'm just old enough that uh, the, uh, the online dating and apps missed me, and I'm mm. very grateful for that. But these days, people get these apps and they just go through people's faces, just pictures, and they go out with a different person a uh, few times a week, and they just dabble. They're just it's flirtation, and no one wants to commit to one course. Um, of course, it happens, but it's just indicative of our society and you see it you see it particularly in education um so so yeah that's what i think i think it's better better to pursue something even if it's not what you're most suited to than it than it is to do nothing and wait around because you haven't figured out what you want to do with your life yet yeah i I tend to agree with you and you, you talk about a flirtatious society was it not one of the roles of the church to to be the antidote to that and to 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 do what you describe and 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 dedicate yourself you know first to god and then to what your family and and your your trade your craft or whatever whatever job you have absolutely um yeah whatever your lot in life that's what you're given that's where you are you you make the most of it you try to move forward um build things um make it better with what you have and I mean, these days, people just think they have all the options in the world and don't uh, don't make that that step, take that risk. And and this is reflected in the whole woke woke culture, uh, because instead of taking someone and taking them through that difficult process of um, self-denial and and, you know, death like uh, shedding of what you do that isn't perfect and replacing it with something better we coddle we try to make people feel better we tell them you're perfect just the way you are and and therefore you don't need to learn and that's what's happening in all universities people are demanding students are demanding their professors um affirm them as they are uh, even in terms of their education rather than actually educating them and central to christianity in fact right at the core of christianity is that you're not okay the way you are i mean that's the doctrine of the fall that's the whole reason that christianity exists as a religion it is the it purports to be the mode of salvation to get you out of the predicament you're in as a fallen human being um and to me that makes a lot of sense but in our modern world uh we've forgotten it we we have and it's it's phrases like fallen human being they're, they're ignored uh, today but they're misinterpreted as well because people can't bear to think that an institution like the church has got any right or or even uh, jesus christ god the bible have any right to assume that someone is anything else but what they want to be right and as we are just on the church, and I know it's a slight digression, but I, I, I can't resist asking you, do you think that perhaps the church might be at all remiss in its its lack of robust protection for, for, for something that should have sanctity like the nuclear family? And I'm thinking about those who subscribe to and support Black Lives Matter. The manifesto uh, says quite clearly that it ideally like to abolish the family and Surely, surely, if there's one thing the church should be stepping up for. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think that most most clergymen and most Catholics or Christians, I mean, the, the C of E, it's probably the worst problem in the C of E. Um, they probably just haven't read that. Most of them think, well, racism is bad. I'm against racism. So I go along with this. Um, people aren't questioning too deeply. Um, this goes back to people never having been taught how to think and even the clergy the modern clergy yeah even the clergy um i i I mean some of them should know how to think most of those 
uh, priests have been trained in philosophy. I mean, all of them have. I think Catholic priests uh, have to. But I, for whatever reason, a, a lot of them aren't thinking too deeply. I mean, the Catholic Church hasn't said much that I've seen on Black Lives Matter. Um, I've seen images of Church of England clergy um, mm. Yeah, kneeling mm-hmm. and, and things like that. I haven't seen. I thought it. there was only one one um, being you should genuflect to. Yeah, yeah, quite. <laughs> um, but I haven't seen that as much from the Catholic Church. But s- certainly, given that, uh, I, I mean, I've read that too. That Black Lives Matter is devoted to uh, destroying the nuclear family. Um, that's something the church should vigorously oppose. Um, but even. Alongside that, the critical theory that um, Black Lives Matter, the, the whole philosophy is built on, um, is, as far as I can tell, a denial of the value of the individual. Um, and as fundamental as the family is, I think the value of the individual human person is probably even more fundamental or at least equal to it. I mean, they're probably not inseparable ultimately, but I don't want to get in trouble with any theologians. Um, and and critical theory, what it does is basically denies that you are an individual person. It says all you are is uh, a member of these various groups that are either oppressors or victims. And so if you happen to have a certain color skin, you fit into one of those and everything you say is infected with, with that thing. Um, so a, a, a restoration of the importance of the individual and the family as the core unit of individuals living together, and then the community as, again, individuals and families living together and ultimately bound by charity. That is the, that, that's the way the church ought to look at it, and critical theory denies all of that. It says all, all that matters is the group you're a part of, the identity group, um, and you as an individual almost don't even exist. Um, so there's a lot there that the church needs to oppose and loudly uh, oppose, uh, and it's not doing it. Um, <clears throat> uh, it's politically incorrect, and and they're afraid. And I, you know, as understandable as that is, they can't afford to be afraid. I, I think about. And I've written about, I mean, if you read some of my more Catholic articles, I've written about the um, the film Silence, uh, Martin yes, Scorsese. I read that today. Yeah, where I, I was thinking, what is it about these Japanese? So the, the, the Jesuit priests that went in the 17th century to Japan, where um, they persecuted Christians, but the small pockets of Christianity, those Christians were prepared to be tortured and die rather than reject and what was it that compelled them and it sort of dawned on me that um being told of this this middle eastern guy who died and then rose again well that's just a story unless you can contextualize it for yourself and it was the information that preceded that that you are of infinite value as an individual that opened their eyes to that and allowed them to accept the rest of it you know you so you're, you're valuable as an individual, you're made in the image of God, but you are fallen, and this happened to redeem you. <clears throat> uh, but the beginning of that, that people don't talk about, it's the the idea that you are valuable as a person that underpins all of Christianity and, and all of the West um, is what's under threat by the woke movement. And, and I think that's, you know, if you watch that movie Silence, that's what makes it so... That's what makes sense of the fact that these these Japanese were willing to die and the priests were willing to risk their lives to bring this information to them because it's of utmost importance. If you don't stress it over and over again, um, it gets replaced by other ideas, such as the state is the most important thing and every individual is just an extension of the state. And if you're not getting with the program, well, then we need to cut you off. That's what the totalitarians do. That's what the shogunate in Japan did at that time. Um, and the priests were willing to sacrifice everything of themselves in order to bring that information to them and and, and, and minister to them and, and everything else. And that's what I don't see the clergy doing today. Um, the, the, the fact that 
once these lockdowns started, the churches were just shut because the government said so. And nobody spoke out against it. Mm. I I was shocked and and quite appalled by that. Um, And I'm still quite appalled by the the reaction of the churches. You know, in, in Canada, there was one pastor who was in prison for 35 days, I think, because he continued to it's have the services. Calgary guy. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, he, he is in, in He's Alberta. The one used to live in the Eastern block. Well, there, so there are two. No, he, he wasn't put in prison. That guy, that's the guy who the police came in and he said, yeah. get out. You, yeah. Nazis are not welcome here. Yeah. But there was another pastor who was imprisoned earlier and was then released um, because he continued to hold services. And, you know, I, I think every single priest and pastor, in Christendom should have followed in these guys' footsteps and just said, yeah, we're all willing to go to prison. Put us all in prison. And, and then and then it, it, it wouldn't have worked. Um, the government would have immediately backed down and instead said something like, okay, uh, try to be sensible. Um, try to limit your congregation size. Have more services so that you can accommodate everyone, but we're not going to close you. But they didn't. And so that... that isn't... Sorry. No, go ahead. Well, it just strikes me that isn't the the primary role or the primary question that any clergyman should ask himself is, um, what what would God have me do or what would Jesus have me do to any sort of predicament that they have? And the predicament that we're we're talking about, surely, surely um, bravery and, and truth um, is is called for in this situation and not to be supine to the state it's remarkable do you not think yes absolutely i i think uh the the, the church has a duty to the truth um above all and to uh to just yeah be supine roll over when when the government says for political reasons because it's always political uh, you need to close um, instead of demanding uh, why is 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 the reason you're giving us true. Um, there's no reason why the Catholic Church or any church can't insist upon proof of something, of a claim that the government's making. The burden of proof is on the government to come and say, we are going to do this. Um and the church should have insisted upon it instead of just saying we're going to go along with this because we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always more to it than that uh, in whatever it is. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if. Yeah, I don't want to go into too too many too deeply into uh, hypotheticals like if it if it had been justified to close churches the church should have insisted that that be made clear and unequivocal. And it didn't even do that. No, so. it didn't. No, it, it didn't even um, cover that base. No. Well, let's let's leave it there. We're, we've, that, that's the hour. And I really appreciate you joining me for this hour. I was I wanted to ask you quite a bit about your writing. I'm so impressed with it. I wonder if you would perhaps consider coming on again to talk to me about that. Yeah, yeah, sure. No, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, happy to talk about about my writing. It's something that I've done more of. I mean, especially when when the first lockdowns hit and singing basically stopped, my Mm. my whole career stopped. I just started writing and I wasn't getting paid for it, but um, I, I saw what was happening. I had things to say about it that I didn't see too many other people saying and I thought people needed to hear. Just started writing. So that's something that's um yeah, something that I'll continue to do. And in preparation for that, if people want to, where can they find um, your writing and and your singing also online? Um, well, I don't have much of a presence online as a singer. I mean, you can find things if you Google my name. As a writer, um, I write for different outlets, uh, probably most commonly the Conservative Woman in the UK, um, as well in Canada, uh, the Post Millennial. I've done stuff for uh, true north um again in the uk i wrote for the spectator once so uh, it, it's all around um people can can find my my writing by googling me and especially the catholic journal i, I thought it's an excellent pieces on there yeah yes okay 
Well, thanks again for joining me on the Infinite Jigsaw podcast. That's another piece of the puzzle found and put in place. Thanks for having um, me. That was really enjoyable. Okay, and I'll catch you next time. Brilliant. Cheers. Ta-ra. Thanks.